Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Barbara Hewson. Barbara, previously known as Barbara Stani, is the leading authority on women, wealth and power. As a best-selling author, financial therapist, teacher and wealth coach, Barbara has helped millions take charge of their finances and their lives. Barbara's background in business, her years as a journalist, her master's degree in counseling psychology, her extensive research and her personal experience with money give her a unique perspective and makes her the foremost expert on empowering women to live up to their financial and personal potential. Barbara is the author of six books and her seventh book, Rewire for Wealth, has just been published. In this podcast interview, Barbara shares her personal story. We talk about her new book, Rewire for Wealth, and the key steps to changing your relationship with money, including how to deal with shame around money. Barbara shares why we need to get used to being uncomfortable for our financial growth, why understanding risk is what makes you wealthy, and how to manage your money. This is such an inspiring conversation. Barbara is a real force to be reckoned with. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Please note that the podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Barbara, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you on. I'm super excited to be here. I have been a fan of your work for many, many years. And so genuinely, I'm so thrilled that you could join me on the podcast today. Now, Barbara, you have an incredible story, which woke you up to money. For listeners who aren't familiar with your story, can you share what happened all those years ago and how the experience essentially transformed your life for the better, might I add? Definitely for the better, definitely. (laughs) Although it didn't feel like it while I was going through it. Yeah, so I grew up wealthy. My father was a very, very successful businessman. And the only advice he ever gave me about money was, don't worry. (laughs) So I love that advice. And under that, under those words was the unspoken assumption, there'll always be a man to take care of you. So that was great. And I married a man who was a stockbroker. So that was perfect. But what I found out very early in my marriage was that he was a compulsive gambler. And over the course of our marriage for 15 years, I continued to let him manage the money because that's how intimidated I was and terrified by anything financial. I just felt overwhelmed and and stupid. I felt stupid about money. Finally, after 15 years, we got a divorce and I decided money's not my thing. I do not want to deal with money. Well, I have this theory that if you don't deal with money, your money will deal with you. And in the next year, I got tax bills for way over a million dollars. I did not have anywhere close to a million dollars. My ex had left the country. My father wouldn't lend me the money. I tried really, really hard to get smart. I went to classes. I read books. I did everything they told me to do. And my eyes would glaze over and my brain would fog up. But I had three daughters. One was just a baby. I was not going to raise those girls on the street. I was not talking to my parents. I was terrified. But I really believe when you make a commitment, like 
no back door. I'm going to walk through fire to make it happen. The universe revolves to help you reach your goal. At the time, I was a journalist writing for the San Francisco Business Times, and I was hired for a freelance project to interview women who were smart with money. Those interviews changed my life. I not only got smart, but I wrote my first book, Prince Charming Isn't Coming, How Women Get Smart About Money. And I was traveling all over the country doing financial education for women, but I couldn't make money. So I decided to interview women who were made lots of money. And I started making six figures before I finished my next book, Secrets of Six Figure Women. And now seven books later, my latest one, Rewire for Wealth, just came out. And here I am talking to you, expert in finances. Who'd have thought? Which is incredible. And your Six Figure Women book is one of my favorites, as well as Sacred Success, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. But your wonderful new book, Rewire for Wealth, which I read in a couple of hours and, you know, it's so enlightening. I just want to pick up on a couple of things before we get into the detail, the nitty gritty of it, because you say that you didn't want to deal with money. You're afraid of losing it. Better for your husband to do that. And this is a quote, staying stupid had become an act of self-protection, the willingly giving all the power to my husband, refusing to participate in financial decisions. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I bring this up because there is research out there to say that women in long-term relationships and or who are married tend to defer their long-term investing decisions to their male partners. And I suspect that this particular point has something to do with it. <laughs> That's multifaceted. But for me, when I was trying hard to get smart, I mean, I was really reading. I was really going to classes. I was doing everything and I just couldn't get it. So I went to a therapist and I remember sitting down in his office and I said to him, Daniel, I really want to get smart about money. I really do. And I was just going on and on how I really got to learn this stuff. I'm in big, deep trouble. I got to understand. And he looks me in the eye and he says to me, no, you don't. And it's like, I couldn't argue. There was a part of me that didn't want to get smart with money, that didn't want to take charge, that didn't want to take control. And you know, I didn't even know it was there. And it was by working with that part that was so scared that if I got smart and I took charge, I'd blow it. I'd make all these mistakes. I was scared that if I became financially successful, a man wouldn't love me. I mean, there were all these deep embedded beliefs that I had no idea were there. And my therapist said, well, of course you're not getting smart about money. Of course you're not getting this. It's an act of self-protection. And I really come to see that I believe that all acts of, quote, self-sabotage, all those things we do but are really hurting ourselves, are really acting in self-protection because we're scared. Fear usually is what holds us back without realizing that that's what it is. And so you talk about this personal healing journey after your marriage ended and obviously your husband landed you in hot water financially. What were some of the key aspects of that healing process that you went through that really helped to reset your relationship with money? Well, to me, what I realized is that creating a healthy relationship with money is a four-pronged process. There's the 
outer work, the inner work, the higher work, and the deeper work of wealth. That's what I call it. And our financial industry, the financial education, most of it focuses almost exclusively on the outer work, the practical. But when we can't get it, when it just doesn't sink in, when we still can't move forward, that's when it's important to go to the inner work of wealth, exploring our attitudes and feelings and decisions we've made about ourselves and money, like I did sitting in that therapist's chair. Understanding what my deep-seated beliefs were that were keeping me, a very intelligent woman, so ignorant about money. And what I found is that most women, once we are financially stable, we have food on the table, a roof over our head, we are not motivated by making more money. No, what motivates us is helping others. And that's why I think the higher work is so important, really understanding why you're here, what your purpose is, and how you can use money to do what you're on this planet to do. And the fourth and final prong is what I call the deeper work of wealth. And that's really the mind-brain connection, understanding how the brain controls our behavior. The brain controls the choices we make, and our life is a result of those choices. But understanding that the brain is shaped by the mind. So when you can do that deeper work of mind training to rewire the brain in conjunction with the higher work and the inner work, you're just a force to be reckoned with. You're unstoppable. And that's what happened to me when I put all those together. It's like the fog lifted. One of your clients, this is taken from your Rewire for Wealth book, Cindy Liu, she sent this email to you and she said, your biggest gift to me was your admonition to commit myself to being uncomfortable for the sake of financial growth and to a certain extent, self-respect, which I think is just such a powerful statement. Can you elaborate on that? Why do we need to be uncomfortable for our financial growth? Because success in anything always lies just outside your comfort zone. I mean, whether you want to make more money or lose more weight, you must be willing to be uncomfortable. You must be willing to go where it's uncomfortable. I have, I have three daughters. They're in their 30s and 40s. And every time they get confused or feel stuck or don't know what to do, they always call me. They always call me and they know exactly what I'm going to say. I always say, okay, what are you most scared to do? And they'll tell me. And I'll say, then that's what you need to do. Because it's always on the other side of fear, always, that not only success can be found, but that's where your power lies. You reference money shame as well. And this comes up a lot. And it's great that people are talking so much more about shame around money. And, and you say, Barbara, that money shame is ubiquitous regardless of one's economic status. And I remember reading that and I was quite struck by that. And also the fact that highly successful women tend to have secret shame. Again, can you share a little bit more about this? I believe that one of the things that's really missing in our financial education is discussion of shame and trauma. Because it is our shame and our trauma that is so painful that 
highly successful women, very intelligent women, will unconsciously create financial turmoil as a distraction from feeling the pain from the shame. And shame is an emotion, but it's the most painful of all emotions. It's the feeling that we are totally unlovable. We are totally unworthy. And those feelings come from childhood. And unless we, as educators, as healers, as financial experts, unless we help women really explore and heal their shame, and with shame is often trauma, then it's like they're on the hamster wheel of financial chaos. You do give some wonderful examples in your book. I think, was it one of your clients called Tracy? She had a very successful business. So she was generating loads of revenue, but at the same time, she was incurring debt. Is that right? What happened is she had this major company, a consulting company. It was a communication consulting company that worked with the biggest corporations like GM and GE and Ford, just huge companies. And they were bringing in a lot of money and she had a big staff, but she was making these decisions. For example, the contract with the client, they needed to be paid, the receivables needed to be paid in 90 days. But her contacts with her vendors and her employees, she would pay them in 30 days. So she always had trouble meeting payroll because she wasn't getting her receivables. She didn't realize she was doing that. But that was one unconscious way she was distracting herself from the pain she incurred in childhood. There was still living very much alive in her, but she was wanting to damp it down and not feel. This is exactly what your new book addresses, the neuroscience around money. Can you talk in a little bit more detail? Because you have created this wonderful framework that readers can apply to their life to address all of these aspects which lead to behavior and, and how we manage our money. Let me just give you a little context. So as I said earlier, our brain controls our behavior. Everything we do is controlled by our brain. And our brain is shaped by our mind. The mind is a non physical entity that is the source of our thoughts and feelings. And as those thoughts and feelings enter our brain, they reach the brain cells and these cells talk to each other and they form a pathway between them, a neural pathway. And that pathway, the more we think a thought, the deeper that pathway grows. And let's say we're having a thought, there's never enough. Then the more we think that there's never enough, there's never enough, the deeper that pathway grows. And the brain will only see and will only hear and will only do what confirms its beliefs. So as those neural pathways get deeper and deeper with the thought there's never enough, we will only see, only do what creates not enough. So if we want to change our behavior, it is very, very, very difficult it is a real struggle to go against a hardwired neural pathway. It's like going against gravity. It'll just suck you in. It can happen. It will happen. But it takes a long time and it takes a lot of sweat. But when you can understand to train your mind, to rewire your brain, 
you can change your behavior in a matter of weeks and months. So it took me about six years to really take neuroscience, understand it, integrate it in my work, and I created a three-step process that I then modified and worked on and, and tested. So I will give you the three steps to train your mind, to rewire your brain for wealth, for well-being, and really whatever you want. This process goes way beyond money, but that's my field. And because so many people have so much trouble with finances, I just thought this was really important work. Let me start with the three steps, and then I will elaborate. The three steps are recognize, reframe, and respond differently. Recognize, reframe, respond differently. So the first step, recognize, is start noticing your negative thought. So start noticing when you have that negative thought, ah, there's never enough, or I'm not enough, or I'm stupid, or this is impossible. Just notice, notice the thought. But I want you to recognize that thought in a certain way. I want you to recognize it with curiosity. And I want you to recognize it and then separate yourself from it. And here's how that looks. Oh, God, there's never enough. Oh, I am having a thought about there's never enough. You separate yourself from the thought by saying, I am having a thought about there's never enough. I'm not enough. I'm stupid. Isn't that interesting? I am having a thought about there's never enough. Observe it with curiosity, and then reframe it. How can you see it different? There must be another way to look at this. And you reframe it. In other words, you look at it not through the eyes of fear, but through the eyes of love and compassion and possibility. So there's never enough could be, ah, there's plenty. There's plenty. You don't have to believe it. The important thing is to repeat it over and over again, every time you recognize you are having a thought about not being enough, you recognize it with curiosity and then you reframe it. Oh, there's plenty. And notice how I said in my voice, there was some emotion, some excitement, some possibility. It's very important that even if you don't say it out loud, that you feel it. And the more you repeat it, you don't have to believe it, but the more you repeat it, it will start weakening the old neural pathway of not enough and start strengthening the new one. But then what seals the deal, what really builds that neural pathway is you respond differently. You respond as if your reframe was true. Oh, there's plenty. And that may mean you start saving more because you know that's how you're gonna get plenty. You start responding differently when you start seeing things differently. Yes, it's very powerful. I was picturing as you were talking there, Barbara, this idea that essentially in the first step, you're disassociating yourself from the thought or always detaching the thought from yourself and almost holding it up and saying, it's this thing. I don't need to focus on it. I don't need to believe it. And then you can kind of step into that reframing position which is where you take control and you say, this is basically what I want to think about. This is what I know to be true. This is what's good for me. And then you keep repeating that new 
thought, that new vision, I guess, that you've reframed. Exactly. i give you an example. A couple months ago, before my book came out, my team had this idea for a project for me to do. And this project, they got all excited about it. I was terrified. I didn't understand it. It just didn't make sense to me. I kept having this voice in my head, this feeling. It wasn't even words. It was this feeling, I don't have what it takes. I can't do this. And then I thought, oh, I need to rewire this. So every time I had the thought, I can't do this. I don't have what it takes. I reframed it to, I can handle this. Did I believe I could handle it? Not in your life did I believe it. But I kept saying, I can handle it. And I'd respond differently. So first I responded differently by saying to my team, yes, I will do it. Then I started organizing it. I started writing a script. I started writing emails. And at first it was like such a slog through the mud. I did not want to do this. And I noticed it became easier and easier. And this is just a few weeks. It started becoming easier. And then it got fun. So you can do that if you recognize the thought, because no thought is truth. It's just a thought. If you reframe to a far more beneficial thought and you respond differently and you won't want to, you will not want to, nothing in your body will want to, and you respond differently anyway, you will notice over time it gets so much easier. How do you make it fun? Because you've mentioned that a few times. How does it become fun? When that old neural pathway that says, I don't have what it takes, I'm not enough, I can't do that. When that starts weakening because you're not focusing, the key to rewiring your brain, what you focus on is what gets wired. What you turn your focus away from gets weakened. So the less I focused on, I don't have what it takes. And the more I focused on, I can handle this. That neural pathway that says, I can handle this, that's stronger. And the stronger it got, the less resistance I had. It became the path of least resistance and it became fun. You reference this idea of reparenting as well, which again is very interesting. Can you explain what you mean by that and how that applies here? We talked earlier, Yana, about shame and trauma. And so often we know what we need to do. But there's this little girl inside of us that starts acting up. There's a very common analogy that's used to describe how our inner child is so often running our show, making poor decisions because she's scared or she's triggered. And it's like you're driving a car. You're driving the car. You're driving along peacefully, enjoyably. And your little girl, you, the little girl, is seated in the car seat in the back seat, all buckled up. And suddenly, a driver passes you and starts screaming and yelling at you. And that little girl gets scared. It feels familiar and frightening and old. She unbuckles her seatbelt. She jumps in the front seat. She pushes you in the passenger seat. She takes the wheel and she says, I got this. And that's what happens when she gets scared or triggered. She starts taking over. She starts making the decisions. And so one of the tools to healing the shame and the trauma that that little girl is responding to is called reparenting. In reparenting, you simply do a guided visualization and you talk to your little girl and you Ask her, how was it growing up? 
So she can tell you about the trauma. She can tell you about the shame. She can tell you about her fear. She can tell you everything because they've learned that traumatized children need to be seen and heard to heal. And as you hear her talk, you can assure her that she's safe. You will keep her safe. You will make sure she's okay. She need not worry. And you can ask her what she needs from you. And you can ask her what she needs from you. And you can tell her what you need from her so that she can go in the backseat and you can be in charge of your life. Does that make sense the way I described it? It does make sense. And I can imagine how challenging that work is because it really is going to your very initial early childhood experiences that, yeah, maybe laying dormant, but actually have a massive hold on your life. I was just thinking of an example to women we know are very interested in learning about money and investing. They're currently not as engaged as much as they would like to be in investing and growing their wealth. It's a slight generalization, but if you look at the data at a high level, how might we apply reparenting to this specific challenge or issue? It has to be in the context of what's going on in your life. If you notice that you just can't save, you can't save. You're a spender. You're a chronic spender. And no matter what you do and how much you try to rewire and how much you try to learn and how much you try to apply discipline, nothing happens. It's probably because your child, your little girl, is making your decisions for you. She wants that instant gratification. And so anything you're having trouble with, you can go back to her and talk to her and ask her what it was like growing up. Maybe she'll tell you that your parents were chronic spenders too, and you've inherited that. She may tell you all kinds, whatever, but that's a very big source of understanding why you can't control your behavior is understanding why she's controlling your behavior and what it's giving her and what she needs. Like when I went to the therapist, as I talked about earlier, and I was scared to take charge of money because I was scared I would blow it. That was my little girl because I learned growing up that, you know, I go to my father and ask questions about money, even if when I was little and about my allowance and spending. He'd say, oh, don't worry, don't worry. And I'd go to my mother and she'd say, I don't know, ask your father. And so I needed to talk to that little girl, which my therapist helped me do, to tell her it was okay and then how I would keep her safe. Barbara, I'd love to shift gears and talk about risk. You say understanding risk is what makes you wealthy, which is absolutely true. And I'd love to hear you talk about that. But also the fact that Often women are considered to be risk averse, but Barbara Stewart, who does a lot of research into women and money as well, she talks about women being risk aware. And I personally agree as well. You know, it's important that we understand what risk is. And I think women also need to define it for themselves. I think the word itself can be quite off putting for a lot of women. But in fact, women are investing. For example, in the UK, 40% of women hold crypto, which is a very risky asset. Women invest in ESG, which arguably can also be risky. And I wonder what your views are on all of this. Also, the fact that there's an old narrative that is being perpetuated about how women perceive risk. 
and money, et cetera. There are a few points there, but I'd love your thoughts on this. Wow, this is one of my favorite subjects. We could spend this whole time talking about risk. So the last thing I wanted to do was invest money. Terrified me, terrified me. Because that's one of the ways my husband gambled my inheritance away by betting on puts and calls and stuff I didn't even understand. And I remember when I was interviewing women for my first book, Prince Charming and Coming, these smart, savvy women, I said, this is so scary that the market investing is so scary. And even the dictionary defines a risk as the opportunity for loss, the possibility of suffering loss. That's what the dictionary says, the possibility of suffering loss. And they would say to me, oh, no, no, no. It's an opportunity for gain. They understood it. They reframed it in a very different way. So risk, really the definition of risk is acting in spite of uncertainty. That's really all risk is. So every day we are taking multiple risks. Every time we get in our car, we are taking a risk, but we don't think about it because we become so used to it. I finally understood there are ways to really minimize risk and maximize gain in investing. The whole point of investing it's not just to amass a lot of money. I mean, that, that'd be nice. But really, the point of investing is to make sure that you have enough to meet your short-term and long-term goals, that you don't outlive your money. And so some of your money needs to be in those places, those assets that grow faster than inflation can take it away. Because one of the biggest risks we as women take is we will outlive our money, that it will not grow as fast as inflation. And so when you understand that some of your money needs to be in stocks and in bonds and maybe real estate and maybe a little bit more volatile stock investments like cryptocurrency, which I personally don't understand quite yet. But there are ways to minimize it. Our brain was designed millions and millions and millions of years ago with one purpose, only one purpose, and that was to make sure we survive. Our brain is all about making sure we are safe and we survive. To this day, that is the most important thing our brain does for us. So the interesting thing is that neuroscience has showed us that men and women process financial information differently. Men see investing and putting money in the market as a challenge, an exciting challenge. It makes them excited. Women see putting money in the market as a threat. So they tend to hold it back. That's why my first rule of investing is never put money in anything you don't understand, whether it's a stock or a bond or the market itself, because you you do not know what you're buying, but you don't know when to sell. You don't know how to evaluate the information that you're getting. And there's three ways that you can really minimize risk. And that is time, diversification, and fees. Any money you need in less than three years, two or three years, should be in cash. Because the biggest risk there is you don't want to have to sell when the market's down. You don't want to have to take your cash when the market's down. So anything less than three years should be in cash. Anything that you can start investing more conservatively and then more risky. The second is diversification. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify. Diversify it in stocks, bonds, cash, real estate. Diversify it in large companies, small companies, diversify it overseas, regional, diversify. And the third is fees. It's really important 
Now, fees have gone so low, there's no reason to pay high fees to anyone because your portfolio has to really outperform if those fees are taking it away. That's great advice, Barbara. And again, it's interesting to see that women tend to invest initially into property. That's where the bulk of their money goes. That's kind of the, the step one, isn't it? And then they look at investing in equities and the rest. But you know, diversifying, to your point, is so important. You really do need to diversify. I just want to say, when you say invest in property, I make a distinction for myself, and I want to offer it up to you, is that my house, my house has been a great investment, and it's gone up for sure, but I don't consider it an investment. It's my house. I don't want to have to sell it if I need money. So I have a rental property that is an investment and that I use. Can you see the distinction? Yes, absolutely. And I think this is a really important point because women need to look beyond just investing in their primary residence. And let me just say one more thing about risk. The fact that women are risk adverse, we actually perform better as investors. Women perform better as investors because we are risk adverse. We'll put money in. Men, because they tend to be much bigger risk, they tend to trade. They tend to buy and sell, buy and sell, which is not a good approach. It's long-term staying put in healthy companies, in healthy bonds, staying put for the long-term. That's what creates wealth. Yeah because you certainly don't want to be paying fees and you don't want to be paying capital gains tax every time. So that's where women tend to come out on top, really, because they don't trade as often as men do. Yeah, it's not just the fees. It's that trading, trying to time the market, it doesn't work. It may work for a little while, but over the long term, they have found it does not work. So true. Now, I'd like to talk about single women. It's important because they do take charge of their money, right? And I found this very interesting piece of research. Basically, in the US, the data shows that single women will make up 45% of the workforce by 2030. I haven't got the data for the UK or Europe. And it also says that single women tend to buy property sooner than their male counterparts. And they're more likely to invest in alternative assets such as cannabis stocks or crypto. Again, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I love that women are investing. The latest research, and I forget where it was. So I'm glad to hear that that single women, because women, once they have a significant other, young women, they tend to rely on the man. It blew my mind. I, I was shocked to hear that. But in investing in alternative investments, no problem with that. Just be sure you're well diversified. And that means you need some really good, solid companies along with those alternative investing. Yeah. That's how you protect yourself from risk. I love this quote in your recent book, Barbara. You say that we have the values, the vision, the sensitivity, and the resources needed to heal the planet. This, I believe, is our essential legacy, our inherent destiny, our utmost responsibility as women. Can you talk more about this? You know, the Dalai Lama years ago said, 
the Western woman will change the world. And I believe it. I really believe that we women in partnership with enlightened men can really heal this planet. That's who we are. We can heal this planet. But as Mother Teresa said, it takes a checkbook to change the world. So I believe it is not just to have more money in our pockets. It's what we can do to make a difference in our lives, in the lives of people we love, and in areas that we are passionate about. Yes. That, to me, is the whole point of wealth. And not just to make a difference. The word wealth comes from the Latin root, wheel, W-E-A-L, which means well-being. And really, that's the whole point of creating wealth. That's the whole point, is to create well-being. And from that place of well-being, from that place of feeling peaceful, we can spread that well-being and peace around the world. It's caring about others. It's recognizing that we're not on this planet alone. And it's thinking about the implication of the decisions that we make and you know, where we put our money, how we invest. It all has a knock-on effect, doesn't it? Yes. And I think it's one of the reasons that women are leading the way when it comes to ESG, which is incredible because they apply that kind of holistic thinking. They think about that knock-on effect. Yes. I don't know the statistics about more women. So I, I haven't seen those, but I believe it. It was really interesting. My parents gave each of my girls, I have three girls, some money to invest. And my youngest wanted to invest it in socially responsible. And the other two said, no, no, they won't perform as well. <laughs> this was years ago. My youngest daughter, those ESG funds are way <laughs> outperforming my other two. I was going to say, actually, because there is research now that proves that over the last five to 10 years, I think, if not more, ESG has outperformed traditional funds. So I'm not surprised to hear that. And your daughter had a lot of foresight. <laughs> to wrap up then, Barbara, and, and you've shared so much with us today, what message do you have for women? So some may be struggling financially because of the pandemic, others because they haven't rewired for wealth yet, but they're certainly in the process of doing that. What message do you have for women around their money, wealth building, you'd like to share? No one will do it for you, but you don't have to do it alone. We women are so relationship oriented. Research out of Emory University showed us that women learn best and quickest about money in collaboration with other women. So I just want to suggest to check out, I have a community, an online community called the Wealth Connection. It's been going on now for two or three years. It was a dream of mine to have a safe place where women could come to, to talk about money as women and to be educated as women. So my website is barbara-husson, H-U-S-O-N, barbara-husson.com. Check it out. Whatever you do, get support. Get support. Find people who are on the same path, who can say, you go, girl, you can do this. This, to me, is the most critical thing for women. So powerful. Please do check out Barbara's website. As you say, Barbara, learning together is 
so much more empowering than learning alone. And that is a crucial part of getting good with money, if you like. It's, it's to learn, right? And to have others around you who are on that journey as well. Barbara, I want to thank you again for today. I want to acknowledge you for all of the work that you have done over the years. You have been an incredible inspiration to me and I know many, many others around the world. If people want to connect with you, you have shared your website. Where should they find you? Go to my website, barbara-hewson.com. I'm very accessible. Send me a note. Say hello. (laughs) I'd love to hear from you. That's wonderful. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse, or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.